For those of us in here, let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Today we're going to be looking at motivation and power for ministry. Well, I was saved when I was six years old. I talked to my dad and had grown up in a Christian home and he led me to the Lord. But as I got a little older, I began to drift away from the things of God. I thought God was boring, church was boring, I didn't read my Bible. But then around uh, late middle school, early high school, the church that I was in then got some new youth leaders and God really used them in a powerful way to just completely turn my life around. And they were just average folks, Rob and Pam Abernathy, just normal people, not pastors or missionaries or anything. They just wanted to, they loved Jesus, and they just wanted to share that with everyone that they could. And it was contagious. And God used them really to spark revival in my heart and in our entire youth group in that church. And it was awesome to be a part of that. And I'm forever grateful for what God has done through them in my life, because really that was a pivotal time in my life where I turned from living for myself to living for Christ. And that's really what eventually led me here, that God put those desires in my heart for me to go to Bible college and for me to desire to be a pastor and to have a heart to come serve here in Utah. But I didn't really understand in high school what all was going on in my heart. All I knew was that Jesus is awesome and I want everyone to know about him. And I, was, I didn't understand really how God was, was working in my heart. But I remember several years later, when I was working at a Christian camp one summer, I was walking to the evening chapel service and I had a little... Uh, Bible in my hand, and I was just reading as I was walking to the chapel service. And I was reading 2 Corinthians 5, and I read verses 14 and 15, and it hit me. That's it. That is what God did in my heart, just like he did in Paul's heart, to make me want to live for Christ. That is what God did in my heart. That's what he did in Paul's heart. And I pray, my prayer is that he would do it in all of our hearts here at this church. And so what we're going to see today, we're going to look at that passage, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 15. And we're going to look at another passage that these two passages really have become foundational for me in my life and ministry. And as I step into the role here of interim pastor for at least the next six months, I just wanted to share this with you as my heart for life and ministry as based on the Bible and how God has worked in my life. And we'll get to 2 Corinthians 12 and why that's so important about halfway through the sermon. But we're in 2 Corinthians 5 now. And what we're going to see from these two passages is that ministry should be motivated and empowered by gospel grace. Ministry should be motivated and empowered by gospel grace. So let's read 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15, and then we will pray. Paul says here simply, 
For the love of Christ compels us, since we have reached this conclusion. If one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you did come to this earth and you died in our place. And you rose from the dead as our Lord and Savior. And thank you that you did these things, not just so that we could go on our way and live as we please, but you did them so that we would live for you. Thank you for these amazing acts of your love. And I pray this morning, as we look at your word, that we would see the beauty and the glory of your love displayed in the gospel, and that that would grip our hearts, that it would move us to give everything to you, and that you would be glorified in our lives. We thank you for this, and I pray for your help now. I pray that your grace would be evident in my preaching, that you would be honored, and that you would do the work that I cannot do in our hearts. And we ask it in your name. Amen. Well, Paul teaches here that ministry should be motivated, first of all, by gospel grace. And in this context, just to help us kind of understand what's going on here, in the letter of 2 Corinthians, what Paul is doing is he is explaining and defending his apostolic ministry to the Corinthians because false teachers had come into the Corinthians and they were saying, no, you don't need to listen to that Paul guy. He's weak. He's lame. You need to listen to us. We have all these cool things we're awesome. Listen to us. And so Paul is de defending his ministry here as truly one that is preaching the true gospel. And in this section, what he is doing is he is showing his motivations for ministry. And if we were to read the entire section, he's comparing his sincere gospel-motivated ministry in comparison to the false teachers who were motivated by money and by fame and things like that. So that's what Paul is doing here. That's why he's really bearing his heart to these people. And these verses, verses 14 and 15, are really the core, the, the heart of why Paul lives and ministers the way he does. So thankfully today, I don't have to defend myself to you guys against false teachers. But this passage really has become my heart for living and ministering too. And obviously I do not live it perfectly, but this is how I want to live. And this is how Paul wanted the Corinthians to live. It's how I want all of us to live here at Rocky Mountain. Because as Paul told these same Corinthians elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 11, follow me as I follow Christ. So what does he say here is part of God's grace that should motivate us to live for Christ? Well, first of all, 
He says that the love of Christ should control us. That's the first thing he says in verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us or controls us. And in this phrase, the love of Christ, people debate, is this talking about Paul's love for Christ or is it talking about Christ's love for Paul? Now, normally, we would want to choose one of those. We wouldn't want to say, well, it just means everything. But I think this is one passage where Paul had a double meaning. The love of Christ means both Christ's love for Paul. That's what he's going to talk about in verse 15, about Jesus dying for us. And then as Paul goes on, he talks about his love for Christ, about how he lovingly serves for the glory of Christ. So that's how the gospel works, really. These two things go hand in hand. When we get saved, we experience Jesus' love for us in the gospel, and that works in our hearts and moves us to love Him in return, to have a, a supreme love for Christ that is treasures Him above all else. And this really is a loving relationship. This isn't something that God gets us in a headlock and forces us to do. You better treat me this way. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes and we see how wonderful and beautiful and loving Jesus is, especially as he died for us on the cross. And he works in our hearts and he transforms our dead spirits to see Christ and to love him and embrace him above everything else. We see Jesus' love and we say, I want that. That is what I want. I want Jesus. As the song says, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. And so you experience that gospel power in your heart and you have a loving relationship with Christ himself. And as Paul says, that love compels us or constrains us as the King James says. And this word compels, it's, it's really a pretty strong word. One Greek dictionary defined it as to exercise continuous control over someone or something. It's used in another place in Luke 8.45 when you remember the story, Jesus is going to the house to raise the dead girl and there's this huge crowd around him and he can barely get through, and this woman comes and touches the hem of his garment. Well, when Peter is describing this crowd, Jesus says, Who touched me? And Peter says, Master, the crowds are hemming you in and pressing against you. That's the same word that Paul uses here. When Peter says they're hemming you in, they're surrounding you. It's all around you. That's the idea that Paul's communicating with this idea of the love of Christ controlling us. It's if you're the person there, the believer in the middle, and all around you is the love of Jesus. No matter where you turn, boom, you run into it. It's over here. You go this way and boom, there's the love of Jesus. It's everywhere. It surrounds us. And so wherever we move, we must be motivated by the love of Christ. And wherever 
Christ's love in us, if that surrounding force moves us this way, we move with it. If it moves us this way, we go with it. It controls us. It constrains us in this way. And that's why one commentator on this verse, he says, Christ's love, I do have the quote, he says, Christ's love is a compulsive force in the life of believers, a dominating power that effectively eradicates choice in that it leaves them no option but to live for God. The love of Christ is so powerful that it really takes away every option that we say, God, I must live for you. This is what I want to do with my life. And why does it control us in that way? Well, Paul says, as we go on in verse 14, he says, for the love of Christ compels us. Why? Since we have reached this conclusion. And then he basically just explains the gospel. If one died for all, then all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. So Christ died for us so we would live for him. That is the purpose for which Christ died. And he says that Christ died for all. That includes not only Paul and the people in the Corinthian church, but me and you. Jesus died for you. He suffered and bled and gave his life on the cross for us. But he didn't just do that so that we could say, all right, thanks for the get out of hell free card, Jesus. I'm going to go and do my thing now. See you later. That's not why Christ died for us. He didn't even die for us so that we could say, well, I'm just going to try to live a, a pretty good life now. And uh, Jesus is going to be on the back burner. You know, when I need something, I'll go to him. No, Jesus died for the purpose that Paul says that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for the one who died for us and was raised. This is the transformation that the gospel works in our hearts. It moves us from living a self-centered life to living a life that is centered on Jesus, where he is everything to us. He is the supreme, the most important factor in our lives. We love him supremely. So if you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, you must live this way. This is not an option. Jesus died for this very purpose. If we're not striving to live for him, we're ignoring the reason that he died for us, the reason that he saved us. It is ultimately for his glory. Now, again, we're not going to be perfect in this. I don't want to crush you with the weight of, great, I have to live sinlessly now. No, that's, that's not what it means. But it does mean that we are striving, we are trying by God's grace to glorify Christ in everything that we do. 
And that doesn't mean that we have to be a missionary or a preacher or do something like that. But it means that we pursue this growing relationship with Jesus by spending time in His Word, by spending time in prayer. It means that even in the ordinary details of our everyday life, we try to depend on Christ and we try to honor Him. We just try to serve Him however we can with the abilities and the resources that He's given us. We want to tell others about Christ so that they too will love and honor Him. You're just living a life where you're striving to love and honor Jesus more and more. That's what Paul is talking about. That's what the gospel and Jesus' love should compel us to do. How many of you know who these two guys are? Yeah, Andy Griffith and Gomer Pyle. I grew up watching shows like Andy Griffith, and there's a certain episode of Andy Griffith that has always just stood out to me as a, a great illustration of what I'm talking about here. Do you remember that episode where Andy saves Gomer's life? He goes into the filling station, and there's a little bin of rags that's caught fire. It's not even a big fire, and Gomer's taking a nap, and Andy goes in, and he wakes Gomer up. Gomer, Gomer, there's a fire, and they put it out, and Gomer says, Andy, you saved my life, and he wants to do everything for Andy then. He said, you want some windshield wipers? Here you go. I'll change your oil for free. And he does all these things, trying to give Andy all these things. And then the next morning, Andy comes down for breakfast. Gomer comes in. He's got a big mess of fish. And he says, Andy, I was up since 4 a.m. I know how you like your fish. Little enough for the man that saved my life. And he just wants to do everything for Andy. He's constantly there, so much so that Andy gets annoyed with it, frankly. And when they're out on the street and Gomer's right there and people walk by, hey, look, this is the man that saved my life. He wants to tell everybody about how awesome Andy Griffith is. And yeah, that's humorous. It's funny. But it's a great illustration of how we should live for Christ. Jesus, I want to do everything I can for you. I want to give you everything. I am yours. I am your slave. Do whatever, whatever you want me to do, I want to do it for you. I want to tell everyone about how you saved me, how you died for me, how awesome you are. That is how we should be trying to live for Christ. Really, that's why Come Thou Fount is, if it's not my favorite hymn, it's really close to it because of that last verse that we sang this morning. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, like a chain, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. I have prayed that prayer so many times. And I hope that all of us can see the amazing, massive grace and love of Jesus in the gospel. 
and that we too would say, Lord, here I am. Seal my heart for you, for your glory. I owe you everything. You have given me everything. That's how we should be. I've seen this click in people's lives. Again, when I was a counselor at the the camp that I mentioned earlier, I remember one week I had this one camper who just did not care about anything. He would just sit slouched in the services. He didn't want to listen to anything. And then it was Thursday or Friday night after the evening chapel. I remember he was just sitting there, like staring a hole in the ground. And I was like, are you okay? And he said, I finally get it. Jesus gave everything for me. I want to give everything to him. I was like, yes, yes, you did get it. That's right. That is how we should live. That's how I want to live. That's how I want you to live. And so one of my goals would be to just help you get to this point if you're not there. If you're not there, I want to do everything I can to help you get there. If you are there, I want to rejoice with you in that and help you grow in living this way. Or maybe you were there once and now it's cooled off some and you want to get back to that. I want to help you with that too. And I want you to help me because I need your help. We can live for Christ together. He is worthy of us living this way. His love in the gospel controls us. It moves us to live this way. So ministry, our lives really should be motivated and empowered by gospel grace. But a lot of times when we are motivated to live this way, even when we want to, it can be really hard to feel like we're able to do it. We feel, God, I'm so, I'm so weak. I don't have what I think I need to live this way. How do I do this? Well, that's where our second passage comes into play. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 with me. Just flip over a few pages to chapter 12, and we'll look at verses 7 to 10. Paul says, Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me, so I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, catastrophes, persecutions, and in pressures because of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So like we said, Paul in this letter, he's defending his ministry as genuinely apostolic, that it has authority. And here he talks about power and credentials for ministry in this section. And he says that ministry should be empowered by gospel grace, not only motivated by it, but empowered by it. And what Paul does, it's really interesting. He doesn't want to just list off all of his achievements and 
his qualifications and things like that because he doesn't want to come off like he's bragging about himself. And so he does that in kind of a roundabout way, but then he gets in this passage to what he really wants to focus on, and that's actually his weaknesses, something that we wouldn't really think that we would focus on initially in a human way. But it's the fact that he's focusing on his weaknesses, and he says, in my weaknesses, it's actually there that Christ's power comes through in my ministry. And so he focuses on those things, and he says first that this grace for ministry comes through humility. He says that twice in verse 7, this idea of humility. He says, therefore, so I would not exalt myself, in other words, so that I wouldn't be proud because of all these gifts that God has given me. And then at the end, he says it again, that these things happen, so I would not exalt myself. So God is working in Paul's life to keep him humble, because that is how God's grace comes to us, through humility. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So what is it that God does in this verse? Well, it says, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. So Paul talks about having a thorn in his flesh. And we don't know exactly what this was. But he's using this image of a thorn, maybe digging into his side or his arm. I don't know. We don't know what it was. Some people think maybe it was a sin that Paul was constantly tempted with. Some people think it was actually a physical problem with his eyes because of some things that he says in other letters that he wrote. Some people think it was a person that, got, that Satan brought into his life to just constantly oppose Paul. Uh, some people think because he goes on to talk about Satan that it was maybe demonic oppression of some sort. Ultimately, Paul doesn't tell us. And he leaves it vague for a reason, I think. And it's so that we can realize that this applies to us too. So, specifically, he says this thorn was a messenger of Satan to torment me. So whatever is happening to Paul, he recognizes that Satan has his hand in it. But ultimately, we know that God was in control of this. Because why did this happen? Like we said, it was to humble him. A messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Now think about that. Does Satan want you to be humble? No. Satan wants you to be proud. So even though Satan is involved in this, ultimately God is using this for his purposes to humble Paul. So maybe Satan was like, I really want to mess with Paul. I want to torment him. And God says, okay, I will let you do that, but ultimately you're going to be fulfilling my plans because I'm the one in control. And so that's really how it is when we suffer too. Isn't that comforting? That even if Satan is attacking us in some way or we are suffering in some other way, God's in control, and it hurts, yes, but 
God is in control and he is working out his good and loving purposes for us in our lives. So God wanted to humble Paul to show Paul his grace. And he used Satan to humble Paul with whatever this thorn in the flesh was. Because grace comes through humility and humility often comes through suffering. That's how stubborn our pride is, that we have to suffer a lot of times to get rid of it. And the reason that this passage has become so important and foundational in my life is because of what I would consider to be my thorn in the flesh. I was talking with Mitch about this the other day, about, and I've mentioned it here before too, about how I have trouble sleeping a lot of times. I've really struggled with this since high school. A lot of nights, I just can't go to sleep. I just lay there and I can't sleep. Or I'll wake up at like 3 a.m., 4 a.m., can't go back to sleep. Okay. And then even if I do get a good night's rest, I'm still, for some reason, exhausted the next day. It's like it doesn't do any good. So a lot of the times I'm walking around half asleep and I have prayed like Paul does here, God, please make this stop. And for a dozen years, it has not stopped. So I don't think it's going away. We've tried doctors and things a little bit, didn't help. So whatever's going on, it's not incredibly serious, but it does impact me. Like this week, there were several days where I would sit down to try and work on this sermon and my brain's just not there. I'm trying to type sentences and I forget what I'm typing about halfway through the sentence. And so I have had to come and realize, okay, I think this is my thorn in the flesh. But I have this promise from God that His grace is sufficient and His power is perfected in weakness. And through this all, God is still working to humble me He still has a lot of work to do in me. But this passage has become so comforting and so encouraging as I suffer through these things. And I pray that it would be encouraging to you too. Because what promise does he give us in these when we suffer like this? Well, he says in verses 8 and 9 that his grace is sufficient for us. Paul says in verse 8, Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. So Paul repeatedly asked Jesus, Please get rid of this, whatever it was. And Jesus said, No, I'm going to leave it with you but I'm going to give you something way more better than having that thorn removed. I'm going to give you my grace and power, and that is sufficient for you. And that is a tough lesson to learn, is it not? Because in our thinking, we think, God, I could do so much more or serve you so much better if you just got rid of whatever this complication was. But God's purpose is to glorify himself through our weakness. 
to show that his power and his grace is sufficient, not our power. So what exactly is this grace? Well, Paul says at the the next part, grace is power that comes through weakness. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And then Paul goes on to talk about his own weaknesses. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, catastrophes, persecutions, and in pressures because of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So you see the idea of God's grace and God's power being paralleled here. And Paul says that that power resides on us when we are weak. And that sounds strange to us, but it's because of what I said. God's purpose is to show his power for his glory through our weakness. And that doesn't mean that when Christ gives us his power, that the the weakness or the pain or the suffering goes away. Remember, Paul asked for it to go away, and Jesus said no. But it means that we can endure affliction, we can continue to serve in the midst of it, and we can trust that even though we feel like we're not doing much, that God's grace is working through us to accomplish His will for His glory. And He gets more glory this way. When something, when someone weak or insufficient like us is able to do these amazing things that God wants us to do, people don't look at us and say, wow, you're awesome. They look at God and say, man, His grace is so powerful that He could use a weak instrument like that and do these things. This is an old wooden tennis racket. I used to, I played tennis in middle school and high school, and I remember there was this show that I used to watch. Looking back on it, it was a really lame show. The only reason I liked it was because it was about tennis, but it was a show called The Prince of Tennis, and it was about this, I think he was in high school, this kid who was just like the best tennis player ever. It was just over the top, just crazy. But I remember this one episode where he goes to play the best kid at some other school, and his racket breaks. Oh no. He's, they give him this racket, and the head on it's like cracked in half. But the Prince of Tennis, he's so good that he stomps this other amazing player, even with a broken racket. Well, in that situation, were people saying, wow, he has an awesome tennis racket. No, they were like, wow, he is an amazing tennis player. And it's the same way with us. God allows these weaknesses. He allows us to have these broken parts in our lives so that when he uses us in some way, people say, wow, God is amazing that he could use someone in that way when they are that weak. That is how... God wants us to live. And I really, I struggled with this for a long time, just figuring out how does this work? So what does this look like in real life? Well, 
to continue with the example from my own life. When I'm tired, when I'm exhausted, I run to this promise and I remind myself of it. I trust in this promise. And that doesn't mean that God suddenly zaps me and I have a bunch of energy all of a sudden and I can think clearly. That's not what happens. It means that I'm still tired, but because I'm trusting in God's grace, I don't just quit. I keep working and I trust that God's grace and power are going to accomplish His will through me, even though I'm looking at my work and I'm thinking, this is not as good as it could be. And then God uses those weak efforts to accomplish some work for His glory. So I've mentioned that even as I worked on this sermon this week, I struggled with brain fog pretty bad. And so if God uses this sermon in your life to do some work in your heart, it ain't because of me. It's not because I was thinking so eloquently that day or because I preached so amazingly today. It's because God's grace worked through my weakness to work in your heart. And that's how it works when we have these thorns in our flesh and we have these weaknesses and we feel like, what can I do for Christ? Trust that his grace is sufficient. And that if you keep moving forward, even though you still feel that weakness, even though you still experience that suffering, trust that God's power is going to work through you to accomplish His will for His glory. Well, finally, what is the result in our hearts when we do this, when we trust in this promise, in God's grace, this way? Well, obviously, like we said, we'll be able to serve God. He will be glorified. But Paul actually says that it will cause us to boast in our weaknesses. Look at verse 9 again, the last half. He says, Therefore, so because of this promise, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, catastrophes, persecutions, and in pressures because of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul says he boasts about his weaknesses. He says, most gladly, all the more. This is as over-the-top supreme as you can get. I am boasting about these things. Why is his attitude that way towards his weaknesses? Because normally when we face something like that, what's our natural response? We complain about it. We don't boast in it or rejoice in it. We tend to complain. But why does Paul boast about these things? So that Christ's power may reside in me. He says, when I have that attitude towards my weaknesses, Christ's power comes and it resides, it rests on me. And he says, so instead of complaining about these things, instead of trying to run away from them, actually, I boast about them. I take pleasure in them, as he says in verse 10. 
And this idea of boasting, we might normally think, well, that's sinful. Why would, isn't it bad for Paul to boast about these things, even though it's weaknesses? For Paul to say, huh, I have Jesus' power because I have a thorn in the flesh. Aren't I awesome? That's not the idea. The idea of boast, if you study this word out, it's actually just the idea of having strong confidence in something. So boast, a lot of times that's how it's translated, but it's really the idea of just having confidence in something. So Paul's saying here, I have confidence in God's grace even when I am feeling these weaknesses, really especially when I have these weaknesses. I have confidence that God's grace is working, that Christ's power is present with me. And I think, like I mentioned earlier, that the reason Paul doesn't tell us what his thorn in the flesh is is so that he can apply it broadly to all of us. Because he doesn't tell us what it is, and then look what he does in verse 10. He lists all these different kinds of sufferings that we might face weaknesses insults catastrophes persecution pressures so really as we look at this passage we could be tempted to think well this promise isn't for me if i don't have the same trouble that paul had but paul actually makes it really vague i think so that we can apply it to ourselves too that whatever suffering whatever thorn in the flesh whatever difficulty it is that we face as we try to live for Christ, we too have this promise that Christ's grace is sufficient for us, that his power is perfected, it's completed in our weakness. And so whatever it is that you are facing today as you try to live for Christ, take hold of this promise that God's grace is sufficient, that he will glorify himself through you even if you feel like you can't do much for him. If you are trying to live for Christ, if you are depending and trusting in his grace, he has promised that it is enough for us. And that is a wonderful, wonderful promise. So as we try to live and serve Christ, our ministry, our lives should be motivated and empowered by gospel grace. Not by our own strength, not by trying to please people. That's not what should motivate us. That's not where we should look for strength. We should look to Christ. We should look to the gospel And we should find God's grace and love there. That is what will keep motivating us in ministry. That is what will give us the power, the strength that we need to keep serving. So that is how God worked in Paul's life. That is how he has worked and is still working in my life. And as I come to pastor you, I want that to be how he works in your life. I want to help you feast on the riches of God's grace in the gospel so that together we can minister, we can serve, we can live in this way 
for Christ's glory. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you came to die for us, but that it didn't stop there, that you rose again as our Lord and our Savior, and thank you that you save us, and yes, we escape hell, and we are forgiven of sin, and we are assured of heaven, and those things are beyond wonderful. But ultimately, you have saved us for your glory. Help us to see that. Help us to live that way. Help us to experience your deep and rich love in the gospel so that it would move us, it would control us in everything we do to live for you. And when we feel weak, when we feel like we can't go on, when we feel like we just aren't capable of serving you like we would want, I pray that you would comfort and encourage us with the promise of your sufficient grace and of your perfect power. Help us to trust in that and move forward for your glory. We pray these things in your name. Amen.